Today's show is brought to you by our new sponsor, Cog Network. Cog Network, geared for gain. Cog Network is hedge fund investing evolved. By owning Cog Network tokens, you get exposure to the hedge fund's gains. The hedge fund is comprised of algorithmically traded commodity futures and investment in hard assets related to energy. The first hard asset is partial ownership of a multi-million dollar solar farm that has a crypto mining operation attached. I mean, this is really something that both traditional and crypto investors can come together and participate in. So for traditional investors, they can get exposure to cutting edge blockchain technology in a framework that they're familiar with, a hedge fund, right? And crypto investors can get exposure to an actual security that bears dividends and includes non-crypto assets. So that's super cool. And just for full disclosure, Cog Network is a fully registered and regulated entity qualified by the SEC as a Reg D as well as a Reg S and has a 506C exemption. They've been working with lawmakers since 2017 to get this idea built out in a fully compliant way. Crypt Nation, if you guys are interested in learning more about a tokenized hedge fund, go visit www.cog.network. All right, what is up? Good citizens of Crypt Nation. It is your hosts, uh, Bryce Paul and the notorious Aaron Pizza Mind. What's up, brother? Uh, you know, we're just getting into the thick of things here with the coronavirus. I, honestly, like, I feel okay, but I'm extremely paranoid. Every single little tickle, itch, cough, sneeze, I'm <laughs> just like, oh my God, is this the it? No, I guess I'm okay. You know, I, I think uh, we've kind of in my opinion, right? So it's uh, what today we're recording this. It's March 24th. Uh, the VIX, you know, the fear indicator, uh, you know, uh, has come down a lot from its height. So it was really at the at peak fear uh, maybe last week and it had its big, its second biggest down day in history uh, just yesterday. So we're really excited to see the fear levels in the market kind of start to come down as we get some more risk managed and really so we can see more you know, more projections on how wide reaching this damage here to the economy really is. Because right now when the VIX is high, that means people can't really price risk and people can't really manage uh, because the volatility is too high and, and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of that's attributed to um, just chaos and fear and confusion in, in the market. So I think you're right when you say maybe the worst worst is behind us here with this whole coronavirus stuff. But well, I certainly hope so. But here's the thing. It's not so much a matter of best, worst, uh, beginning or end. It's these little things that sneak their way in because exactly. governments are always trying to take advantage of the situation exactly. to turn something in their favor. So we really need to get some additional insight about this. Bryce, what you got for me? Yeah, man. So we got a, one of our good buddies, Harry Halpin, uh, the co-founder and CEO of NIM Technologies, joining us today. Uh, Harry, quickly, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, great to hear from you, and um, thanks for the invite. You bet. Yeah, so Harry, uh, you know, longtime cypherpunk, uh, you know, on the original cypherpunk mailing list that Satoshi Nakamoto started talking about Bitcoin, and Harry was involved in all sorts of different, uh, you know, crypto stuff dating back to the, you know, the early 90s and stuff. So we're really excited to talk about, you know, uh, the Earn It Bill, which is this anti-encryption law that the government is trying to sneak under our noses. We're going to talk about the early days of Bitcoin, and we're going to talk about privacy. Um, so, Harry, first off, thank you so much for joining us. And give us a quick download uh, on who you are and how you really became 
uh, a quote unquote cypherpunk it and really. Well, I mean, I, I consider myself, I guess, uh, more a crypto anarchist to a large extent, <laughs> mainly because I believe uh, I'm very much, I very much believe in anarchy. I believe that people uh, can uh, have autonomy, they can organize their lives uh, how they see fit uh, with a minimum of centralized top down control particularly from the violence of the state. And I believe cryptography is an essential tool uh, to accomplish this political vision. And, um, and the cypherpunks were basically a group of people um, who got together, uh, I think towards probably 1992 or so, and they had some similar concepts. Now, Cryptographers have been kind of publishing papers about digital currency, about, you know, anonymous email, about all sorts of things. Mostly David Chom in a very stunning set of papers um, in, in, the, in the kind of late 80s, early 90s. Um, but, but none of these had really been taken to their logical conclusion politically. So the, 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 the cypherpunk mailing list basically got a large group of people together. And that mailing list started a lot of conversations. And some of these conversations led to everything such as the concept of smart contracts, um, led to the concepts behind WikiLeaks. So Julian Assange was an early member of the list. And perhaps most infamously, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto posted in 2008 the original uh, Bitcoin white paper and then the code to the cypherpunks mailing list. Um, and I think that's, it's not as well known as it should be. People don't use mailing lists anymore. Everyone uses telegram, telegram groups or whatnot. Yeah, but I still Facebook, think, all sorts uh, of different stuff now. Yeah, but it's nonetheless, it was a really important historical moment. We really got all these people together who were like, how can we use cryptography to make a more, a world that's really uh, preserves our liberties, at least in cyberspace. Mm. I'm just curious, like when that Bitcoin white paper came across your email list for the first time, I mean, you read it. Did you think it was particularly novel? Did you think it was really going to have the staying power that you see today? Um, I mean, when you already had seen Digicash fail and eGold fail and Hashcash fail. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's the important thing to remember that the concepts uh, behind Bitcoin had been floating around in the cypherpunks mailing list and even implemented uh, to a large extent for years. So it seemed at the time in 2008 just to be yet another weird digital cash proposal. And there we'd already seen a dozen of them. Um, and so I asked a, a friend of mine, actually, uh, Ben Laurie, who strangely enough now works at Google, but was also on the cypherpunk uh, you know, was a, a kind of cypherpunk, ran this uh, hosting server called The Bunker back at the time. And I kind of asked, I said, well, you know, is there, is there anything really new here? And he actually was very against the proof of work component. So he thought that uh, wasn't going to work. In fact, he'd even published a paper in 2004 called Proof of Work is Proven Not to Work. So he convinced me, uh, <laughs> you know, I said, well, he's a very smart guy. Uh, that I shouldn't invest in Bitcoin and, and not take it too seriously because we've already seen a half a dozen of these things come and go. Um, of course, you know, later I made him feel guilty about that. Believes and now he's working at Google because he's 
probably, you know, not needing uh, the money after not investing in Bitcoin. Exactly. But nonetheless, uh, you know, and he, had, he has a fair critique uh, and, and his critique, which is which is reasonable, uh, basically says, well, you know, and he point this out, points this out in 2004. He says, well, you know, the problem proof of work is that it's not really a particularly useful computation. It's not like, for example, uh, some sort of virus uh, protein folding computation they're now seeing, for example, folding at home for coronavirus. Right. Um, it's He thought it had bad ecological repercussions, which other folks like Bram Cohen uh, shared that critique. And he thought that, you know, people would be able to get around it by building faster processors, which they did, GPUs, and by essentially attacking other people's devices, so malware. So actually, you know, 2004, he presented all these objections, most of which, to be frank, became true. But then what was really amazing is that despite those objections, people needed a sovereign, um, non, you know, deflationary, hard money, effectively, that, that isn't controlled by a single government. And now with Corona, we're really seeing, you know, with the platinum coin and pushing a trillion or so out, you know, every, every few days, it seems. Uh, there really was demand for this Bitcoin thing, regardless of any technological issues. And I think the technology issues were overstated in retrospect. And I just like to, and, and I, the, the real thing, which I think very few people noticed around the, the, the publication of Bitcoin, you know, hash cash, uh, the, the cypherpunks were very interested in, in basically anonymous and pseudonymous communication. Um, and I think that the, the, at the same point, they're also very interested in digital cash. And the, the, one of the most ambitious attempts to do digital cash was this crazy company called Eagle. And Eagle basically said, we're going to put a bunch of gold in the bank account, uh, you know, in a vault somewhere in Florida or eventually the Caribbean. And we're going to, you know, we're going to give you notes, which we can centrally verify, which says that you have the right to this much gold and you can use those for electronic transfer. And this actually came out the same time, you know, around the same time as PayPal did and got very popular. Uh, but the United States government went after the named owners of, uh, of eGold and the central, you know, their legal structure. And around, you know, 2007 or so just completely took them out. And even though the owners of eGold really wanted to cooperate, it didn't matter because they had, you know, broken money transmitter laws. The they, you know, the government wanted clear, essentially KYC procedures. Uh, they were concerned about the, it being used for legal purposes. And it's kind of funny that as soon as Eagle gets taken out, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto publishes a white paper without his real name, basically saying, "Well, we don't. We can do this Eagle stuff. We can do." you know, DigiCash, eCash, using HashCash, which is something that Hal Finney had already of, using proof of work, but we can distribute the authorities in a permissionless way. And that was the real breakthrough that I think very few people saw when the paper first That's came really out. interesting. It's also like the government was just afraid of having a gold-backed note competing with the U.S. dollar, which was, has been off the gold standard for 20 years as well. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think multiple companies, David Digicash, um, other folks, the various other eCash schemes, eGold, 
you know, people have been wanting to do this for years. And, and over the decades, any company which had tried to do this had, had failed and often due to regulations and being shut down. And I, I do feel that the regulations around perhaps money transmitter laws were um, overly weaponized against like eGold and all of the early companies who were honestly trying to cooperate and do the right thing. But the fact of the matter is, to some extent, just as you see with Libra today, um, you know, the U.S. government doesn't want competition for any uh, for their, you know, Fed back currency and anything which is a threat will be eliminated and any laws that are useful will be used to eliminate that. And so not having a central authority, not knowing who Nakamoto is, is exactly what prevents a Bitcoin from meeting the same fate as the earlier. That makes a lot of sense. And that really, really highlights the importance of decentralization just right there. But I, I got I got a quick but before we breeze on, I think that's a really big concept that I want to kind of talk about. So, you know, Harry comes from the world of, you know, more leaning towards crypto anarchy. But the, the question is, you know, what happens if to a society where there's no tax collector, right? There's no central authority to distribute um, and to, or to socialize, you know, different losses or socialize different projects. What happens in a world? And, you know, that's the real reason why there is any sort of demand or for, for the dollar because it's a mandated demand, right? If you don't pay your taxes, you, you go to jail or whatever. So, and you could only pay your taxes in us dollars. So I guess my question is like, you know, if we're trying to get rid of the, the hegemony that a sovereign has on the money, you know, how does a society get together and make shit happen? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is that nation states, are inherently backed by physical force, by the army or the police. And, you know, to be honest, because of that, I religiously pay my taxes and have been doing so. And will continue to do so for a while. Which, that being said, nation states with armies are not the only way uh, the world has been organized. You know, there's even a a weird um, alternative. Back in the medieval era, when you wanted to build a, a new church, Often the church would just mint new money to help fund the church being built, essentially doing a sort of community ICO almost. And before nation states really got settled in the 1700s, 1800s, you had a, a vast variety of different political structures. And I think, I don't believe that humans uh, will survive as a species without socialization, uh, without basically getting together, without mutual aid. Uh, without collective work. Uh, that's all true. That being said, um, that can all be done without a single global empire. It can be done without a nation state. Humans have done this bottom up via communities and in a self-organized fashion since the beginning of time. And nation states, to be honest, are, are relatively recent. And I actually think that's an important point. You know, Assange also backed this point where essentially you know, the centralization of violence is very unprecedented today. Historically, you know, smaller, more voluntary local cooperatives and companies and communities uh, have historically been the dominant form of human social organization. And, and they've been less violent for the most part. And I think we can go back to that form of organizing. In fact, the cypherpunks, Timothy May had this article, I think it was called Cyber Libertaria. He published that in 92, 
where he basically said, one of the reasons we're going to do cypherpunks and for focus on cryptography on the internet is because it allows people to form and involuntarily leave communities of their choosing in a form of liberty, which we don't have now because of the nation state, because we just have to be born in the United States or Tunisia or wherever. And, you know, we, we have all this baggage because we're born in the, at this particular time and place. But imagine a world of freedom where you can choose your community, choose the rules and have a real what I would call fundamentally democratic say in how it's governed. That is a really, really good point that you bring up. You know, we didn't choose where we're born, but, you know, we want to be able to choose the life we live. So how can we kind of create our reality on the Internet with these private communities? Yeah, so let's, I think we, it might be useful to, to think it really quickly. And this is, I'll talk a little bit how this gave rise to the company I'm working on, NIM, uh, which is the idea of how can we have private communication? So the cypherpunks had a number of uh, concepts that are very powerful. One was digital cash, but it wasn't digital cash. Cash wasn't the only thing they felt was necessary. They also felt it was important to have private and pseudonymous and anonymous communication. Um, and they... The, the original versions of this were simply mailing lists, uh, a re, what was called a remailer, which would, if you want to post a mailing list anonymously, would just strip out the email headers, the two in front, the two basically, with any identifying information. And what you saw happen is that you know those were still attacked, and so they started creating more complex ways of sending messages anonymously. You would, for example, send all your messages to a single. Uh, server, that server would make all those messages the same size, mix them up, and ship them out. Uh, that was called a, a mixed network. And they even developed kinds of mixed networks. Um, this was called the cypherpunk remailer list, or Mixmaster, and later evolved in a piece of software called Mixminion by the people who later went on to create Tor and our NIM co-founder, George Denisis. These, these softwares even allowed you to respond anonymously. And all of this is caught up in the development of Bitcoin because at the time, if you made anonymous messages, the obvious use case and danger of anonymous messages is you wanted to be used by human rights activists, by normal people who want to discuss things anonymously and pseudonymously, but you don't want to be overwhelmed by spam. And that's why Adam Back, who was a cypherpunk, perhaps one of the most famous, who now is the CEO of Blockstream and works on Bitcoin Core, uh, you know, he, that's why he invented Hashcash, which is the solving these Merkle puzzles or hash puzzles. Uh, and he imagined that solving these hash puzzles would essentially serve as a kind of stamp. And you could prove that you, you had this stamp in your message and that would allow you to then, for example, prevent a random guy from overwhelming an anonymous email email system. But the fact of the matter is, you know, Bitcoin got really big. Tor became very uh, dominant and work and coding on private anonymous communications minus, you know, work around VPN and, you know, great work such as the Tor network and the ORCID VPN and these sort of things, minus VPNs, how to make actual anonymous and synonymous messaging really work, people stop looking at that question. So with what's obviously called NIM technologies, because NIM is anonymous or pseudonymous, it means name in ancient Greek and it comes from the uh, Tim May had this great paper called True NIMS or this concept of NIM server where you would be able to receive and send messages anonymously. You know, NIM Technologies is trying to take mixed networking and decentralize it using this block, using blockchain technology to produce 
essentially a new kind of even more powerful, at least for messages than Tor, uh, pseudonymous and privacy enhanced communication. We think that's the natural next step after Bitcoin that really, I think, completes uh, the crypto anarchist vision. Do you have a friend who's interested in getting into cryptocurrency, but they don't know where to start building their portfolio? Well, we have the answer. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders, just like myself or Bryce or Kevin, at the exact price point and in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply just sign up and copy our trades. Any profits that we make, you do too. Proportional to your investment, of course. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com slash crypto101. Thank you. Wow, that is amazing. Very, very well said and definitely covered a lot of ground. I definitely want to hop back uh, hop back to some of the use cases for NIM. But before I do that, um, I want to take us back to uh, a similar time that we might be having now. So we had in, uh, you know, after 2001, uh, the, the Twin Towers fell and there was this Patriot Act that kind of, you know, came about, which violated a lot of uh, America's privacies because uh, the government and the CIA and the NSA could spy on, you know, all sorts of different communication channels. And the, we basically gave over all of our digital privacy uh, in the Patriot Act. And, and now we have something called the Earn It Bill, the Earn It Bill. Uh, it's like some type of anti-encryption act that I'm starting to hear about. And I really don't know too much about. So you're the expert. Um, can we get your take on what's really going on here? Well, I think you have to understand that there's been... A, a real desire to, to first not have encryption in the 90s. That's one of the things that led to the cypherpunk mailing list. This, uh, you know, that Phil Zimmerman releasing PGP and putting strong encryption in the hands of the people in 1991. And then in 93, basically being st- stuck in a giant court case, which after, uh, which took, you know, up to, I think, 2000 six or nine with the Daniel Bernstein uh, case to basically say, look, encryption should be public. And folks like add back, you know, when the U.S. government was trying to make encryption illegal and have been trying to do so for a long time, they wanted, oh, we want a mandatory backdoor in all encryption. So yeah, it's encryption, but the U.S. government has a special key that can decrypt all of your encrypted messaging. That was the, the clipper chip concept. And, you know, and they even wanted to make the source code illegal. And that's why folks, you know, uh, Adam Back put the source code for PGP and RSA on a T-shirt and started shipping them out to people. Uh, and eventually free speech won and encryption was covered under free speech. This is danger uh, with the Earn It Act. And the Earn It Act basically says, OK, we're going to give up on trying to backdoor encryption in the classical sense, demanding that we get a key to your communication. But what the goal of the Earn It bill is, is that basically due to, I think, uh, reasons they claim has to do with child trafficking or whatever, but who knows, next week will be about terrorism and the week after will be about Corona. I mean, they'll always find some uh, spurious reason. Yeah, Um, scapegoat. I mean, obviously, child pornography is terrible and should be illegal, but uh, it is illegal, actually. Already is illegal under the federal laws. But the goal, which... Earn it wants to do is they want to make sure that 
encrypted messages are scanned on your client device uh, before you send them to, to see if they're illegal. And they say, oh, break encryption, but it is. If, you, if, the, if the user does not have absolute privacy on the device and control over their key material, and the, 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 the messages are being scanned because, you know, they, they, they don't want it to have something that the uh, attorney general views as bad in them, then that's breaking encryption on the client side. And that's just as dangerous. That's the, and, you know, I do think there's a decent chance they're going to pass it through because everyone's panicking about Corona and, and no, and very few people are, are watching for end encryption. Yeah. So basically the implications for something like that happening, you know, obviously they're trying to catch all the bad guys and we, we like that, but in we, we cast this wide net that catches all the bad guys along with all the good guys. Um, you know, what, you know, why, why is privacy so important for all of us who say, you know, I don't care. I'm not doing like, you know, my mom, for instance, or my, my grandparents, I don't care if people scan my messages, uh, scan my pictures. I'm not doing anything wrong. So, you know, get rid of the bad guys and I'll give up my right to pro- internet privacy because I'm not doing anything wrong. What do you say to those people? Well, let's, let's take one step back, back to earn it. And what is earn it saying you have to earn? And what they're saying is you have to earn this already existing a law called uh, Section 230, which basically from the Communications Decency Act. And, and what that says is that says that if I run a website, if I run a web service, I'm not liable for what people post on my site. And that means I can moderate it myself and I can't go to jail. So if someone posts something anonymously or pseudonymously, or even in their own name on my site, it's illegal. You know, they put up, for example, a child porn photo. I can't get sued. You can still, but here's the thing. You can still arrest the person under existing laws today. Of course, you know, child porn is illegal. Terrorism is illegal. Drug dealing is illegal. And there are already federal criminal provisions to deal with those things. But the danger is that's actually quite hard to catch criminals. It's much easier to just say, hey, Google, shut this site down. Hey, you know, website encrypted messaging app. Don't let these messages through. And the danger with that is that that's actually, it's just to be honest, law enforcement being lazy because it's easier to try to shut down a website or to ban a messaging service than it is to actually catch the real criminals. And when you basically try to make, you say, we're going to make posting this stuff illegal. We're going to make sending it impossible. You know, and we're going to break into encryption and do it. What you're actually doing from a federal law enforcement perspective is you're, you're basically moving the charge from the criminal, from the person who's doing the act, to the service, to the digital service, which the criminal is using to communicate, which to me seems very wrong. And then you're telling the digital service, hey, let's destroy the evidence. So I, I honestly, you know, let's take these pictures down, destroy these messages, never let them be sent. And why would you want to do that? It seems very counterproductive. So I, I honestly think earn it and these bills, even if they are well-intentioned, effectively will lead to less criminals being caught. And that what you need is you just need people to actually gather evidence and do real prosecutions and nothing prevents that in the current legal structure today in the United States. But in terms of privacy, the danger is particularly with Corona, we're seeing uh, even rights as old as the habeas corpus possibly being provo- uh, revoked by the U.S. government due to a state of emergency, is you, you will never know 
because the laws keep changing if something you're doing is illegal. What if next year, you know, Trump or uh, who knows, President Biden uh, pass a law saying, you know, the Bitcoin is a legal act because Bitcoin, Bitcoin on your phone or on your laptop, you know, because we can't trace it to you, you could be using it to fund, you know, something bad, illegal. All Bitcoin users can face time in jail. And then the government, particularly as we know from Snowden, the NSA, has a perfect digital record of tons of communication. They'll be able to use that against you. If it's particularly they can easily read it, if it's in plain text. And even if they can't read it, even your encryption is, uh, your communication's encrypted, it may not be private. They can pick up the metadata. They can figure out who's talking to who. They can say, oh, well, we can't prove you had Bitcoin, but we can prove that you communicated to this other person who, for example, sold Bitcoin or traded Bitcoin. Or you communicate to someone who's a political dissident who might be against President Trump or against President Biden. And this is now illegal. And it's a very slippery slope. And so I think that our goal should be to, by default, I, this is what, you know, the founding fathers of the United States supported. And, you know, it's been the sort of like philosophy for hundreds of years. We should support individuals' right to make their own choices and to communicate via free speech. And that that speech should include the right, not just to talk, but as, uh, as various people know, the right to whisper, that, that the talk, so that only the intended recipient knows what I have to say, that random people, including even the government, may not have that right. And that involves two things. It involves keeping the message secret, which is encryption does enough, and in, in keeping the message private. And that's why you need networks like Tor and NIM to actually make that very even active communication undetectable or unobservable. And um, if you don't have those rights, then at some point, even with the best of intentions, do something which is later judged illegal, or you could even not do something illegal, but you could just know someone who's illegal, who's done something illegal, and be caught up in a conspiracy charge, be thrown in jail, have your Bitcoin taken away, have be fined. We don't know, but it's almost certain that even if you don't think you've broken a law, you probably will make a law. And we don't know what kinds of governments, particularly authoritarian governments, may be coming down in the future using corona and other uh, excuses to mandate more and more authoritarian surveillance and control. And just to add to that, you know, one of the things that really makes America great is in this country, unlike many others, you're innocent until proven guilty. And this Earn It Act, from what it sounds like, is flipping that on its head. And that is a very, very dangerous thing when everyone's guilty until proven innocent. And I feel like a lot of KYC and crypto is very much like that, too. Is I have to prove that I'm not a terrorist. I have to prove that I'm not a criminal before I can invest in something to change and better my life. And I don't like that at all. So, And it just takes a little step further, a little step further every time. And that is very, very dangerous because like you said, like you don't always know if you're breaking a law. If you, as a listener right now, go on Google and you type in how many laws are states, Google can't tell you. It literally doesn't know. There are so many pages of laws that change all the time. I mean, it's absolutely impossible to know whether or not you're breaking a law. Now, if you say for sure, for sure, you're not breaking a law, let me ask you this. Have you driven more than 65 miles an hour on an open highway before? Well, guess what? 
that's technically breaking a law. And if you've gone over 15 miles an hour over a speed limit for any reason, that's a felony. That's a felony. No one would ever actually charge you with it. But there's all these laws out there. Most of them are bullshit. Hardly any of them are actually enforced. But they're there just in case the government needs to have another tool in their toolbox to come after you. For a situation like uh, Harry just mentioned, let's say someone you know or you know, there are many different degrees of separation uh, has done something very illegal. They could rope you into it and bring you in for questioning or charge you with conspiracy, whatever they wanted to do for many political reasons. So that's why privacy is so important. Even if doing anything that you think is wrong or you know that is in your heart as hearts is wrong, it doesn't make a difference with the government. They can always come after you for any reason to make an example out of you. So that's why privacy is super, super important as a fundamental right to begin with, not as an option. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't be throwing fundamental rights out the window. Uh, you know, a lot of thought went into the creation of the Constitution. A lot of thought went into a lot of the um, technical work that's been done recently to make encrypted messaging. And, you know, we're putting now currently putting a lot of thought into privacy. And if you look at it, had the United States government made crypto illegal during the original crypto wars in the 90s, you know what we wouldn't have today? We wouldn't have eBay. We wouldn't have Amazon. We wouldn't have online shopping because it is basically impossible to do online shopping without encryption, without sending it. You don't want to send your credit card number, your details in plain text. And likewise, you know, I think making Bitcoin illegal making privacy tools like Tor or NIM illegal, uh, you know, effectively is, is shutting down a huge space of innovation, which we desperately need right now. Yeah, we could I, have, I, the next billion dollar companies could come out of these, these tech te technologies. I think that's really the main point, you know, right there. Um, just the idea that, hey, if, if we did, if the government did get its way uh, back in the 90s with encryption, you wouldn't have online shopping and think about how big of a deal or any sort of app with a payment gateway or um, any sort, any of that, it would all have been uh, stifled because the government was scared. So in the same way, think about all the amazing apps that are going to be built on Bitcoin and on these, you know, decentralized private networks that will give, you know, free bank accounts to everybody uh, or, or, you know, will give you free access to different sorts of applications and all different things are going to be happening once you could build on the back of these open source technologies, and unless the government comes down and bans everything, and if they do, there's just going to be a lot of innovation that's left on the table. Yeah, and I think now there's a race for innovation, right? So, you know, different countries are jumping in. And, you know, so for example, they make Binance illegal in China, Binance leaves China. Uh, you know, as a privacy company that's making a privacy software, which you know, is to our, our best of our knowledge, the only software which is basically fairly, I would say, fairly and arguably resistant to NSA level analysis of internet traffic. You know, we thought long and hard about where to put our company. And we ended up not putting it in the United States. We put it in Switzerland because in Switzerland, we found there's support for privacy in Europe with data protection. We found supportive local governments and, and banking institutions. And, um, you know, that's great. But, but at the same point, you know, looking at the current political environment, uh, it's, it's difficult to even choose which jurisdiction to, to, to start a company. And that, and that 
that shuts down a lot of innovation, particularly in the blockchain space. Speaking of the blockchain space, there is a lot of uh, uh, privacy-centric projects out there like Horizon or Skycoin or Komodo. What makes NIM technologies different from some of these others? Oh, yeah. So what NIM works on um, is, is we work on essentially what we said earlier. We take some of the concepts from mixed networking and we, we improve them and we use a, a blockchain to coordinate the mixed network so that we basically have resistance to even NSA level traffic analysis. And we do this by chopping your traffic up. So each packet is encrypted. Each packet is the same size so that the size of the packets can be used to distinguish the packets. And that the packets are, are, are sent at different times. And, and, and this packet form we use is called Sphinx. It's also used in light, the Lightning Network. But light, the Lightning Network doesn't have great privacy properties. Um, on the other hand, we do. And our network is very generic. We don't have our own cryptocurrency. You can use whatever cryptocurrency you want, Bitcoin, preferably privacy-enhanced one like Monero, Zcash. Um, if you're trying to do a private transaction or a private Bitcoin sidechain, I think there's lots of great work being done by Blockstream there. But Regardless of how, what cryptocurrency you want to ship, you want to make sure your network level traffic is private. And that is really hard. And if you don't do it, when you do this part of Bitcoin, no one thinks about this peer-to-peer broadcast where miners pick up your transaction and you know try to put it on the chain. That peer-to-peer broadcast, while well, it has, you know, it, it's been around for since the 90s itself basically throws your IP address and the time you did your transaction and the, the contents of that transaction around in the clear for anyone to pick up, which could be the U.S. government, could be Chainalysis, could be a cyber criminal. We don't know. So we really, our technology is very generic. It's privacy enhanced and it guards that step of a Bitcoin transaction, but it can also guard the privacy of any transaction, for example, a transaction to a website or any kind of app. And the thing we do, which is different than all the other projects, is that we really try to guard against NSA-level surveillance, which, for example, a DVPN like Orchid or even Tor doesn't do right now because they don't hide the time of the transaction. They just hide your IP address. We try to hide and obfuscate the time of the transaction and the patterns in the internet traffic themselves. And that's something that, uh, to our knowledge, um, the only other software maybe comes close is uh, David Chom's Elixir. David Chom's, of course, a genius. But the problem there is that, you know, that software is all closed source and has its own cryptocurrency. We're trying to make this generically available for the whole world. So I think basically we're the only ones that do really NSA resistance in a way which anyone can use for any app or any blockchain. That's pretty badass. Super badass. So, yeah. A nice job, Harry. Uh, so what do people need to like, how do they utilize this? Is this a program they have to download? Is it a website they have to go to? Is an app on their phone? How do people use NIM? Yeah. So, I mean, NIM is just like Bitcoin. You have a decentralized network of miners. We have a decentralized network of what we call mixers or mix nodes and they mix traffic. And so right now we're still in testing, but you can download the software and run a mix node. And this mix node, you know, that lets you 
you go to our website, nimtech.net, go to the docs slash docs. And if you go down, you'll see in eventually you'll find the, the instructions for installing the Mixnode software itself. And you can run it. It's just a, some a Rust code on ideally a server, virtual machine, uh, Kubernetes setup, whatever it is you have around. And that lets you mix packets. And then in order, what we really want people to do is want people to imagine what kind of apps need better privacy and what kinds of new apps and new services can be built with privacy. And for that, we are still currently building, but you can still build off our network today, even though I think it's still very much in the testing phase. Uh, things like Bitcoin wallets, private messengers, um, all sorts of things like that on top of the network today, even though it's still very much in testing mode. So code's all online, it's all open source, it's all in GitHub under, not surprisingly, NimTech. And uh, we'd love for people to try it out and get in touch over Telegram or Keybase, which is where our developer channel is, or just send us an email at uh, contact at nimtech.net, where we're pretty open and we're trying to get as many different people to run these things as possible because and this is an important lesson about being anonymous, is you can only be anonymous in a crowd with a lot of users, a lot of different people running nodes, with a lot of diversity of people. You don't want everyone just to be in the US, you don't want everyone to be in, just be in Europe, just be in Asia or Africa. You really want all sorts of people, from human rights activists to Bitcoin traders, um, the, more different kinds of people that use the traffic and uh, mix other people's traffic and that use the network, the better. And that's really what we're aiming for. Uh -huh. Very interesting. So there's no uh, like cryptocurrency associated with anything that you're working on? No, not right now. We are trying to figure out because, you know, the problem with a decentralized network is what if I open a mix node and everyone just, I, I, I don't, I just drop all the traffic. I don't mix anyone's traffic together. I just block connections or I'm malicious. I try to break the network. Uh, I try to monitor people's connections. So right now we're working, and this is uh, not published yet, but we'll get something out soon, on a kind of reputation system based on proof of mixing, which is kind of like proof of mining. We basically use some fairly fancy cryptography around what's called verifiable uh, random functions and some commitment schemes, decentralizes with threshold signatures. And essentially we get to the point where we can sort of say we can actually prove if as a net, as a member of the network, you're actually doing your job, you're actually mixing up other people's traffic and helping them be private and even anonymous. And so we're still kind of working all of those parts out. So none of that stuff's in the current test network. In the current test network, you just hope, you know, it's more like a tour. You just kind of send traffic in and you hope it gets through. And if it doesn't, you just send it again, just like you would just send the Bitcoin transaction again if it never got picked up by a miner. But we do hope to build in uh, more sort of cryptocurrency-specific features. And we've started talking to a number of cryptocurrency folks, everyone I know about, you know, everyone from Blockstream to Electric Coin Company, looking at cryptocurrency-specific integrations against the NIM MixNet. Really brilliant. Um, and, and then kind of one of the, the last couple of questions we, we like to ask every guest, um, what's one what, what of what is one other uh, cryptocurrency or cryptocurrency project that you really admire right now that, that you would recommend look take for the guests to take a look into? Um, I mean, you know, to be honest, privacy enhanced cryptocurrency is, is, is really hard. 
Um, you know, I try to do it and have tried to do it. And, and if you really want to try to be perfectionist about it, I actually ended up, you know, using Monero on this, you know, tour boot, boot CD tails. And it was a mess. And I'm actually quite a big fan of what uh, the Wasabi folks are doing. I think that stuff seems to be user friendly and works fairly well. So I would recommend people interested in private Bitcoin transactions. Uh, the, the Wasabi folks might be what I would recommend downloading first. And in terms of, of uh, other companies, I'm, I'm, I'm really fo I follow really closely. Uh, I do follow, of course, everything um, Blockstream does closely. Big fan of their work on Lightning. Uh, their attempts to put Schnorr signatures and Taproot into Bitcoin will allow us to much more easily integrate NIM against Bitcoin. Um, and I think those are the main projects I look at. There's some very excellent scientific research coming out, even though I don't look at it uh, personally super, super closely on the code level, from the Zcash Foundation and um, from some of the folks in the Web3 Foundation, uh, the folks on Input Output Hong Kong, like particularly Agalos Kiyas, who works also on mixed networks. And I, whenever I see some of those names summed up by with a new paper or new uh, product, I do tend to take a look at it. Brilliant. And then the last question that we have for you is, um, you know, if, say, for instance, is the very first podcast somebody getting into the crypto space is listening to, what would you have a word of advice for them? Yeah, I would say um, the thing about privacy is that once you break it, it is a little bit harder to get it back. So I would really look at, uh, just as you know, you don't want to lose your Bitcoin, and I've definitely lost a fair amount of Bitcoin in my time, I would say really investing particularly hard and being able to basically run is, um, you know, secure, uh, secure key material, keep everything on a laptop, learn Linux, run it all from Linux and free software, uh, and, 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 and trust, really, you have to trust not just Bitcoin, but you have to trust the, the computer you're using for your Bitcoin transactions. And I'd really focus on learning that rather than just going to an exchange and letting the exchange control your transactions, because A, that leads to a lot less privacy, and B, you know, you never know, the exchange is going to always walk away with your money, get hacked, or get taken down. So I really recommend people learn their laptop, learn the client-side software, install wallets client-side, and back everything up again and again and again. And when you back up, just simply use full disk encryption so that when your computer's off or your hard drives are seized, they are not, you can't give your wallet or your sense of information for everyone, but that requires having a really good scheme for passwords, in which, to be honest, the main thing with passwords is obviously they shouldn't be so simple and moron can figure it out, you know, rainbow table it. But it's more, most Bitcoin I've seen lost because people themselves forget their own passwords. So you should definitely go back to old fashioned techniques of how to make good passphrases and remember them. And there's great, a lot of great techniques that, for example, involve circling, a, using a favorite passage from a book, uh, these sort of techniques. And I, I do think people, uh, can and should use those techniques. Yeah, well said. Um, I actually forgot my password to get into all my Crypto 101 stuff the other day. Uh, it's just been so long since I had to get prompted for it. I still don't 
don't remember what it was. I ended up resetting it to something else. Completely embarrassing, but it can happen to anyone. So don't feel like you're dumb if you can't remember a password, but it's definitely important to have a good password scheme where you have some hint written down over here or another clue over there that only you can figure out. But it's definitely important to have some type of trail that's unique to you. Harry, thank you so much for joining us on Crypto 101 today and sharing all these wonderful stories and insights with us. Um, aside from NimTech, uh, where can people... Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Harry Halpin, and I'm pretty accessible over Twitter, and uh, I, I look forward to hearing from people. I hope they found this this useful um, and some of the, you know... I think trying to get to the like the political reasons why a lot of this technology was invented, which wasn't just to kind of help banks, but really, you know, Bitcoin and mixed nets and privacy tech. This was all really invented to empower people against the vast asymmetry of information that Google has on you or the asymmetry of violence that the state has on you. And I think that people wow. should yeah. be empowered. So, so, so well said. And this was unlike uh, any other episode that we've ever recorded. Very powerful, um, filled with a lot of passion uh, and philosophy and pragmatism as well. Just very practical ways uh, to kind of empower yourself by technology. So, Harry, thank you so much for, for spending the last hour with us. And we hope to have you on again someday soon. Definitely. Keep getting the word out to everyone. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.